Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Um, yeah, my name's Daniel, and uh, I've known of you guys for quite some time. I know her as. Anyway, Ellen joined our church, so thank you very much for that <laughs> transfer, and they've been a real blessing to us. Um, and I was a pastor at Hope Church Bromley. On Friday, I got my P45 form. So I am, no, I am jobless. For the next three months, I am without a job and uh, free to do anything I like at any point. So it's quite an, a, a weird feeling. Um, but we're in a big transition at the moment. Um, it was about five years ago, during some quiet times I was having during the summer period, that I felt the Lord just continually giving me this vision of being involved in ministry in central London, which at the time was very odd because we were kind of talking about long-term plans at Hope Church in the wilds of the suburbs of Bromley. And so I think, okay, that's where my life's going to be. This is where we're going to be. And then God spoke these things over some about five years ago. And then two years ago, almost to the day now, um, I think you've had Trevor come. Do you remember Trevor? So um, he had this vision of me in central London, which was the identical vision. And he shared this with me over like a coffee. And uh, I almost fell off my chair. I burst into tears. Or I, I walked out of the room and then burst into tears because I wanted to like save some face anyway because I knew God had just spoken that we were moving into central London. Didn't know what that meant. So at the time, that was t- almost exactly two years ago, um, sat down with Steve Oliver, who you know, who leads Regions Beyond with Heather uh, and Trevor. And I said, look, this is what God has just spoken to me. And we agreed we're going to do this. But we knew that to do this, getting into central London was a different kettle of fish. To, it wasn't going to be just three of us, a dog, and hoping an aunt would come along and do a Bible study and just see. We knew we needed a bit more of a, an oomph, a big bang theory to church plants. We needed resources and money and people and things like this to get it going. So it wasn't until last year, last summer in fact, uh, where Trevor asked Steve to come and join, Stephen had to come and join the church plant into central London, help us lead this kind of uh, beachhead mission into the centre of London, so from there into North London and then into Europe, let's see what we can do together. Steve said yes, so at which point we thought, right, humanly speaking, we are in the best position now to leverage people, finances, everything we can do. If we've got Stephen and Heather on board, we can do this, so... We made a plan last summer, and Jenny's just here, actually. A round of applause for Jenny. Jenny and, uh, Jenny and Joe like to uh, boast that they're the first members of Trinity, or even <laughs> members before me, because God spoke to them first about it. But anyway, one way or another, they've come from Worthing to move to London, to be part of our city, and uh, join the church plant, which is super exciting. So anyway, last summer, we decided we're going to go for this. We put a date in the diary, September the 9th, because we knew... With all of these things, if you don't put something in the diary, it's quite easy to think, well, wait another month, we'll wait another month, we need this, we need that. We'll just keep pushing it back. So we put a date in the diary, it sharpened all of our senses and our prayers and thought, okay, now's the time to get going. So we're in a very exciting stage. Um, we had our fusion conference, uh, which is kind of the, all the regions beyond church in the UK getting together last weekend, I think it was, which was great, 1,300 adults, I think around 1,400 people got together. And uh, there's a few of us been praying, so we wanted to raise money for the church plant and other uh, kind of projects that are happening in the UK and across the nations. And a few of us were praying for around £250,000. And it was like one of those prayers, you know, you think, like, it feels stupid to pray it, so we'll just keep it to ourselves. But 
Like there's that moment where God tells Elijah, I think it is, to whack the stick on the ground and he only whacks it three times. And God says, if you'd whacked it more times on the ground, I would have given you more. So he felt like, let's just pray 250 and let's just see what God does. And as Steve was preaching during last, uh, the conference last week, um, he let slip that we've been praying for 250,000. Apparently, Steve said later that he spent the night sleepless because he regrets because he really, he was like, I'm in faith for it. He was expressing, but like, I'm not sure we're really going to get there. So he was beginning to formulate, okay, how do we pastor like a thousand people? We only got a hundred thousand. We're praying for this, but it didn't quite work out. And this is, you know, God's still good. Anyway, we raised 240,000 pounds over the weekend, which is amazing. And we've had another person come forward to offer some more money for the work. So we, before we know, we're going to make that 250 plus some, which is just Incredible. So we really feel God's hand on us. We're going to be launching in the uh, Double Tree Hotel, which, if you know, the Victoria Station, it's just across the road from there. So nice and central. We've already had prophetic words about launching into Europe quicker than we imagined. That's the word. So we're kind of thinking already. I've got a little goal in my mind that we can plant a church in the first five years of being at Trinity and just see what we can do from there. And then London is our oyster card, I guess, from that point on. So it's going to see what we do. So we'd love you to pray for us. Um, we feel very nervous. We're moving home as well, new school, everything like that. So our whole life is a total reset at the moment. We're praying for some investors to buy a home with us. So if you've got some spare cash kicking around, and Owen hasn't asked you for it already, if you want to <laughs> invest in a London property with us um, and buy a stake in a home in central London, we would really appreciate it because we're planting a church and planting a family at the same time in town. So um, that's kind of where we're at. And one of the verses that I want to speak from this morning, this isn't going to be a 40-minute plug for Trinity, just so you know. Um, it's from Habakkuk 2, and this has really been on my heart burning for the last year or so, and it's just one verse. And Habakkuk's a tricky one to find anyway, so I'll just read it to you if you want. And it's this promise from Scripture. <clears throat> and it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 14, the earth will be, not maybe, but will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just imagine that for a moment. Every single square inch of the earth will be covered. And it's a stupid promise because as the waters cover the sea, but the sea is itself water. So in and of itself, it's this kind of redundant picture of that everything will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Every single crevice, every square inch of every heart and every office and every house and every street will be filled in London with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And this promise has spurred me on in the last year to think we are walking in line with God's promises because in Greater London, there's what, eight and a half, nine million people, around over seven million of those do not know the knowledge of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when people say, why are you planting another church in London? Because there's HDB and there's Hillsong and there's these other kind of churches around. Why? Because there are still seven million people. It's the most still, the most densely populated area in the UK where people don't know Jesus God's promise is that one day the whole of London will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. And it is our role as churches to see that glory spread. So friendship first. is an, You are walking in the promise of God that he wants every single heart and mind to know his glory. And what I want to do this morning is just tell a big story 
and it's not a very practical sermon. So if you're like a type A to-do person, I want some stuff to get on with. I'm very sorry. I don't, I don't have many to-dos from this sermon. But I just want to fill you with a big vision of the story of God. Because Christianity at its heart is a story. Sometimes it can get boiled down to abstract principles or doctrines, which are sometimes okay to understand various aspects of what Christianity is about. At its very worst, Christianity gets boiled down to rules. This is what you should do. But when you read the Bible, what you find is that Christianity is a story that we find ourselves caught up in. Some of us are still here, like we're unexpectedly part of this story. Anyone, like, that's, like, I never thought I would be in church. I never thought I'd be in church, let alone doing this kind of thing, teaching people the Bible. I never thought I'd be doing this. But what happens is we get caught up in this big story, the story of history, humanity, from beginning to end, this Bible encompasses everything. And Brixton Beacon Church and Trinity Church London and every other church that is loving Jesus right now, we are part of this massive story. So I want to start in Genesis, and we're going to get to Revelation. I'm going to talk super fast, and I know... You've got to have lunch, so don't fear too much, okay? Father God, I want to thank you for this morning. I thank you so much for this church. And um, yeah, just conscious now, Lord, that Beacon Church is going to be our future church. Trinity Church is closest, regions beyond friend in London, Lord. And just pray for a blessing of friendship over our two churches, Lord. This be a really joyous thing as we seek God's kingdom in our great city. And I pray right now you would bless us, Lord. Bless everyone here, Lord. If those people here aren't believers, Lord, I pray for open eyes. Lord, I just pray for a way to see their their place in this story, Lord, that we all might leave this place in confidence and with great joy in what you're doing across the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. But unlike other stories, it doesn't start in violence. It doesn't start with uh, abrasive antagonism. It It starts in peace. It starts with God speaking life, getting down on his hands and knees, creating Adam and Eve, man and woman, us, humanity, and breathing life into us so that we might be animated and come to life in the very presence of God. So the very first thing that we were aware of as humanity was the presence and the glory of our maker, And we're told in those early chapters that we would, in the cool of the afternoon, walk with our maker and talk with him, share our hearts with him, share our dreams, share our hopes. And the Lord himself, our maker, would walk with us and share his hearts as intimate friends. This is what we were made for, to walk and to talk with our maker through this world. And in our stupidity, we walked away from that. But those early moments are formative. And, you know, sociologists and and children's doctors will tell us that the early moments of a child's life are super formative. And uh, those very early hours, in fact, where where a young child is born, what happens very often is the nurse will will give the naked child to the mother so they can have skin-on-skin contact. Because the first thing, if this child is going to grow up healthy, is that they get to be in the presence of their mother intimately. And they spend time with their mother Because there is health, there is bonding, there are crucial moments in those early hours and days that happen that form a framework and a base for the rest of their life. And we're told now in the first few years of a child's life, not just the first seven years, but the first few years are so crucial for a healthy upbringing. 
The mother's presence is super important for a baby. I, I read this story recently of this Australian mother who gave birth to t- t- twins premature, prematurely, Kate Og. And I just want to read this to you. It just makes this point so powerfully. Because she'd given birth to one of her children at 27 weeks, and then her other child was born and was struggling. And it says, as it was a final chance to say goodbye for the grieving mother, Kate Og, after doctors gave up, up hope of saving her premature baby. She tearfully told her lifeless son, born at 27 weeks, weighing two pounds, how much she loved him and cuddled him tightly, not wanting to let him go. And although little Jamie's twin sister, Emily, had been delivered successfully, doctors had given Mrs. Og the news all mothers dread, that after 20 minutes of battling to get her son to breathe, they had declared him dead. Having given up on a miracle, Mrs. Og unwrapped the baby from his blanket and held him against her skin. And then an extraordinary thing happened. After two hours of being hugged, touched and spoken to by his mother, the little boy began showing signs of life. At first, it was just a gasp of air that was dismissed by the doctors as a reflex action. But then she startled, the startled mother fed him a little breast milk on her finger and she started breathing normally. She, she said, oh my God, what is going on? Said Mrs. Og. A short time later, he opened his eyes. It was a miracle. Then he held out his hand and grabbed my finger. He opened his eyes and moved his head from side to side. And the doctors kept shaking his head, saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. That is the power of the presence of a mother in the early moments of a child's life. And for us as humanity, we were born directly into the presence of our Maker. I I grew up in West London. Everyone's got like a map in their heart of what is home. You know, like, have you ever had that feeling when you've been away from home and you drive back into your neighbourhood and something like changes? Or if you've been away from home, like you've been studying or you've moved out and then you come back to where mum and dad live, like where you really grew up. Do you know that feeling when you like drive back home and something in your heart just relaxes a little bit? Do you know that feeling? Anyone like, uh, when I drive back to West London, so I'm on mission South London right now, like I've gone south of the river, I'm on mission. Every time I cross the bridge and get into North London and then move along the A4 back home, something in my heart just relaxes a little bit. Like I love all of London, but something just changes because like that's where home is. And that's what we have with God. There is a relaxing, there is a peace when we know we're in the presence of our maker. And some of you have found that lately. Like you come into the presence of God again and something relaxes because this is where I'm born to be. This is where I am made to be, walking in the presence of my God. And in our stupidity, we have walked away from this. And we thought we could do this ourselves. We thought, okay, we're going to walk away. We're going to find our own way in life. We're going to do things on our own. But all that happens is that we get disjointed from the very life-giving force that we were made for. And rather than finding life, what we find is emptiness and this great big hole in our heart. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal says this. He says, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each human soul which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So people walk around 
thinking we're going to find life without God, what happens actually is there is this hole that we then try and fill with all sorts of other glory, the glory of this world. All the classics, money, sex and power, and all the other variations, iterations of those things. We think if I go after this, then that thing that is dissatisfied right now, that will be filled. I remember through my teenage years, going from thing to thing, thinking like, this is going to be the glory that on earth that's going to fill this sense of emptiness that I feel right now. And I went through like all the different hobbies I could think through, like DJing, BMXing, skating, bodybuilding. That definitely didn't work out. I I literally, I went for all of these things thinking, if I can get this kind of earthly glory, it will satisfy this whole. But there is no glory on this earth that is big enough for the human heart. We are too dignified a being to just have earthly glory fill what our souls are made for. We're made for the eternal God of this universe. And what we're told in the scriptures is that when we walk away, the ultimate destination of that is a thing called hell. That is us outside of the presence and the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians talks about eternal destruction being that outside of the presence and the glory of God. So the end destination of us walking away from God is God simply saying, if that is what you ultimately want, then here you go. But it is not life, it is destruction for our soul because we're made for someone bigger and more beautiful and more glorious than ourselves, King Jesus himself. That's what we're made for. But we keep looking around all the time. Some of you have testimonies of like, yeah, I looked through some different things. I tried to find something that would satisfy. And we have it even in like the most mundane things. Like if you've ever been on a holiday and you've been looking forward to a holiday for like a year, like a dream holiday. I've been in this situation. You've seen like pictures. You like look at it. You Google map it. You look at the brochures. You can't wait because you think this holiday is going to be it. And on that trip back, like there's this weird, annoying feeling like, The holiday was really good and I loved it, but I still feel like as tired as I did beforehand. Have you ever had that feeling? Like like I paid a lot of money and we went a long way and this is really nice, but it still didn't quite touch the thing that I thought it was going to touch because this world is not our home. We're not made for this. An African pastor, Augustine, said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So our friends and our neighbours who don't know Jesus, even on the externals, may feel like, hey, I'm doing okay. There is a restlessness that will only be satisfied in the peace of the presence of the glory of our Lord. So what happens? Some, some of the earliest structures that archaeologists found now are little temple structures, religious structures, to a higher being. Because there has just been this innate awareness in us as human beings that even though we feel slightly disconnected and slightly out of place in this world, we're aware that there is some kind of higher being or power out there. And people who don't believe in Jesus Christ will often believe in some kind of higher power. You might do today. There's a karma, there's a purpose, there's a destiny. People who don't believe in a sovereign God will often say, this thing happened for a purpose, I believe it. Because there is a somehow awareness that there is something out there that is bigger than me that is kind of orchestrating things, a fate of some kind. And so us as human beings have been creating temple structures where we can connect with this higher power throughout all of our lives. Because even though we know we're rejecting, we don't want to make, we don't want an objective kind of a judgment over me and eyes on my life. I want to do what I feel like I want to do. We know that we still want to, we still want to 
fill this hole somehow. So these little temple structures are all across the face of the earth, signs that humanity have been trying to reach out. The first time in the, in the scriptures we get this is the, the Tower of Babel. If you've been in Sunday school and you coloured in pictures, you will know the Tower of Babel. That us as humanity, we tried to build the biggest structure, we're told, so that we could reach the heavens and that we could stand on the top of this thing, say, hallelujah, look at us, God, aren't we impressive? And God would come down and think, hey, guys, we, we've got to look at, the, these guys are impressive, we need them on our team, we need some help, let's, let's, let, let, let's see what these guys are doing in Babel. But what we're told is that God has to come down, as it were, on his hands and knees with a microphone glass and have a look at this itty-bitty little thing that us as humanity are trying to do. We think we're so great we've made this great tower of Babel God can hardly see the thing from the heavens he's down on his hands and knees thinking I think they're trying to do something let's come and have a look and 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 there we are trying to make our way trying to win approval with God but what the scriptures tell us is that through our achievements and through our works we can never win approval with God we only win approval with God through what he does for us and not what we do for him And Abraham, who came a few generations later, was a a God-fearer who understood this. And so when he heard from God and God spoke to him, he knew very quickly that he he wasn't going to please God through building temples. That wasn't going to be the way that he appeased God and pleased him and followed him. Rather, Abraham made these little altars, these little moments where he came, and they weren't to please God, but they were to say, thank you for all that you're doing in my life, and I want you to have your way for the rest of my life. So he kept building these moments of glorifying God, saying thank you along the journey. And, he kept, and, and the, the Middle East is littered with Abraham and his family, these kind of little moments of saying, okay, we're going to build something to say thank you to the Lord right now. Um, just a few days ago, I mean, it was literally two years almost to the day where God spoke, you're moving into London for myself. And I found myself like totally unplanned to the hour, to the day, two years later, back in the same pub where me, Steve Oliver and Trevor sat down and decided we would plant a church into central London. It was like an amazing turn of events. I hadn't like, walked in. I thought, I, so I took a picture of it. I was super tempted to like pile up chairs or do something really biblical or like do an Abraham and thank the Lord for what he's done over these last years. And that, that's what Abraham was doing. It's like every now, he would say, stop and say, thank you. These moments. And these structures have always been important to God's people. When God, years later, took his people out of captivity in Egypt and he led through Moses his people out of under Pharaoh, out of captivity through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, one of the first things that God told Moses to do was to build, as it were, a temple-like structure, a tabernacle, this tent. And if you've ever been doing your Bible reading, if you've been like, trying to read the Bible in a year. And on trying to, you get to Leviticus, you get to the Pentateuch, you get into those like second, third books, and you get to this whole description of like what this tent should be like. They're the, they're the tricky days, aren't they? You're like, okay, there's like these amount of ringlets and there's these poles, we get it, yada, yada, yada. And you're like, why is all of this being described? It feels very distant from like how I'm going to make it at work today. Like this, this tent project that God was involved in. The tent project was all about God creating creating a place, not where man could boast and say, look what we've done, but God would bring the blueprint and where his glory could reside on earth. Because God knew that the way in which we are going to be restored and redeemed as people is not just being taken out of earthly captivity, but being taken out of spiritual captivity. And he says, I'm going to bring a place where my glory can safely dwell. 
And so God's people under Moses' leadership built this tabernacle, this tent-like structure, this like super nice glamping-like tent. It's not quite the Hilton, but it's definitely not New Day. It's like somewhere in the middle tabernacle where God says, I'm going to pour out my presence and my glory is going to reside here. And it has to be contained because if, it, if there weren't a place where my glory would be contained, if you saw my glory face to face, you would not live. And so in the early moments of this tabernacle, we have Moses praying this prayer. We have this account, the end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Only the temple mind, because God knew that if it broke out from that place, that everyone would be obliterated under the weight of his presence. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day, and it then was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So if you were an Israelite in those days, you would have woken up from your camp, and, and just question maybe you had a doubt in your mind is God with us as his people what would you have done you would have turned to the center of the camp and seen the tabernacle and seen the cloud over it and known that the glory of the Lord rests with us as his people he is with us we can be confident that was their confidence and then God's people grew and they established themselves in the promised land and generation went and generation went until we got to King David and he was the most successful king of all of Israel and he came to this super uncomfortable place where he realized that his house was bigger than God's house. So he had created this epic, beautiful, humongous MTV Cribs-like house. This was the kind of house that cameras would want to walk around and get a... And he came to this uncomfortable conclusion that as he went up onto his veranda morning after morning and looked out and saw God's house basically in his garden... He began to feel like God should have a better house than him, which is a fairly reasonable thought when you think about it. There's, there's a, there's a, this is totally by the by, but down in Kent, in the wilds of the suburbs of London, there's Down Baptist Church, and we drive past it every now and again when we're trying to get the kids to sleep, and we, we do this big like loop. And Down Baptist Church has a manse like, next to it, the vicar's house, and the house is bigger than the actual church. So I always think of this moment. I'm like... Yeah, that's like David and God's house. Like the house is actually bigger than the meeting place of God. And this is what David was experiencing. So he began to pray and think about building a house for God that would demonstrate God's glory on the earth. But because David had been involved in so much sin and bloodshed in his life, God told him that, yes, these plans and these are good, but I want your son to fulfill them. So he passes on these blueprints and asks his son Solomon to build this temple. And Solomon builds the most beautiful structure that had ever faced, uh, the, had ever been on the face of the earth up to that point. So much so that nations would come. The Queen of Sheba wanted to come and have a look and see whether the rumours of the glory of Jerusalem were true. And she came and was amazed at the glory of the house of the Lord. And at the dedication of this building, Solomon prayed. But he didn't pray with presumption like, hey, 
God, we built this thing like Tower of Babel. Now you can definitely come down. This can be your home, okay? This is where we want you to live. He didn't presume that God would ever just come down on our say-so. This is how he approached the dedication of the temple of the Lord. So Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, and I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you and your glory to dwell in forever. But he asked this question, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? So he knows that this is a crazy thought for God's glory to actually be on the face of the earth. Would you actually do that for us with all of our brokenness, with all of our sin, with all of our shame? We, we know what we walk in, this kind of sense of the griminess of this world and this earth. Would your pure glory really rest on the earth with us? It says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built... Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name, or you could say my glory, shall be there forever, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And what happens is that the glory of the Lord falls in the temple and all the priests, we're told, could not stand but lay on their faces because of the weight of the presence of the glory of the Lord. But it was only contained in one place, the temple. And again, in our stupidity, we walked away from God. We thought we could do things our own way. And a few hundred years later, what we find is that this temple has been destroyed by foreign forces, that the glory of the Lord on the earth has been marred, that people can't see his glory in the same way. And all at the end of the Old Testament is left without hope until we have this young baby boy. Well, baby is young, so yeah. So this baby boy is born to this peasant family, Mary and Joseph. And this young boy, Jesus grows up and studies the scriptures and visits the temple year on year with his family as good, faithful Jewish people. And every year, go up for Yom Kippur and make an offering of an atonement for their sin. And every year, this Jesus, he grows up, we're told when he was at the age of 12, was studying the scriptures and was astounding the local rabbis at the knowledge that he had of the scriptures. And we can only imagine as he grew, year on year as a young boy, understanding increasingly of what his identity actually is that he was not just one of amongst other faithful Jewish boys, but that he had a special promise over him, that he had a special calling over him, that he had a special mission given to him, that he had a special identity, none other than the Son of God himself, and grew and grew in confidence in this fact. And you've got to imagine Jesus as a young boy going year on year, then 13, then 14, having this growing awareness that as he went to the temple, and when he went just maybe meters from where the Holy of Holies was, and the glory of God lived and dwelt on the earth, this growing awareness that beyond this, this curtain where the glory of the Lord dwelt, that this wasn't just the glory of God for Jesus. This was actually the glory of his own Father on earth. And this staggering realisation of the calling that was upon him to fulfil all the promises of the Old Testament to make reconciliation for the sin and the shame of us, God's fallen people, 
realizing that one day it would be his life that would be a sacrifice at Yom Kippur and not just a lamb. And going back year after year, I would imagine asking the father, is this the year that you want me to make sacrifice with my own life? Is this the year that you want me to make sacrifice with my own life? And at 30, downing tools as a carpenter and realizing that now is the time to take up ministry, to take up preaching. And here's the thing, Jesus really wound up the religious leaders of his day. Like, he, he, was, a, he was a troublemaker in his day. The religious leaders did not like what Jesus talked about because the religious leaders had their system in place. Like, this is how we do God. This is how we do forgiveness. There's a temple. There's a curtain. There's a sacrifice. There's a priest. This is how we do it. And Jesus was walking around the rest of Israel, handing out forgiveness like it was running out. He's like, he was like I, I'll forgive you. Yeah, I can forgive you. Here's forgiveness. Here's a healing. And all the religious leaders were pulling their hair out because they're saying, you can't do that. If you want forgiveness, you have to walk to Jerusalem. You have to carry your lamb. You have to give it to the priest. You have to make a sacrifice. You have to shed blood, then you get, you get absolution for your forgiveness of sins, and then you can walk away. And he was Jesus, miles away from all of their structures they had set up, saying, hey, I can forgive you. Do you want forgiveness? Yeah, here you go. He was winding the religious leaders up something chronic. And he, he said to them at one point, he wasn't afraid of controversy. He's walking down past the temple. He said to some of the religious, hey, um, I tell you what, here's a challenge. I want you to knock down the temple, okay? And like, this is their pride and joy. I want you to knock down the temple, and in three days, I'm going to build this, okay? And they got cross, put it like that, because it took them 46 years to build this temple. And here's Jesus saying single-handedly, give me a trowel, give me a bit of cement, give me two nights, three days, I'm going to rebuild this thing. You can imagine, like Owen saying, like standing up next Sunday, say, right, guys, I've got a project on. I want you to demolish this school, by Wednesday, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're going to rededicate this because I would have rebuilt it single-handedly. Like, this is the kind of craziness that Jesus was talking about. But John, reflecting on it later, realized that Jesus wasn't talking about this physical temple. He was talking about his own body. He said, okay, destroy this body, and in three days, this is going to be raised again. Because John knew, after reflection, that the true temple was not bricks and mortar, but Jesus himself, the body of God on earth. This is where God's glory ultimately resides. So John says later, he says, the word dwelt amongst us, tabernacled, literally tented amongst us, and we have seen his glory. We saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then as Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, he was going up to make atonement for your sin and for my sin and for the sins of the whole world. And as he was being crucified, he didn't go to Golgotha with an animal in his arms, did he? Because he himself was the ultimate sacrifice. John the Baptist says, this, this, this is the Lamb of God. And by this Lamb, every sin on the face of the earth is going to be forgiven. By this Lamb, all the sins are going to be taken away. Jesus Christ doesn't go with the priest because he himself Himself is the final priest who offers up himself as a sacrifice before God the Father, crying out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being cut off from the presence of the glory of God, what we are all made for, so that all of us who have been cut off from the glory of God may find a way back in. And God himself on the cross is crucified and dies. And the Father who sees this moment at 
the Day of Atonement, sees Jesus Christ being crucified outside of Jerusalem and sees all of these lambs being brought to the old sacrificial system in the temple. And he has a choice in that moment. Do I accept the sacrifice of Jesus, my son, the perfect, spotless, ultimate lamb? Or do I accept all these animal sacrifices, knowing that they didn't do anything in and of themselves, but by faith? He chooses to accept Jesus and this sacrifice and he takes the temple system and all the religious systems that had been set up and he takes them and he tears the temple curtain in two so that where his glory once resided in one fixed place, he makes this massive statement and now says that my glory is not going to be contained in Jerusalem anymore, but it is going to cover the face of the whole earth. And as Jesus Christ was crucified... Here the temple is torn in two and the glory of the Lord breaks out so that every square inch of this world now is as holy as that few square meters in Jerusalem. So this ground you are standing on is is as holy as Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, as the ground in Jerusalem. This is as holy ground because this is where we can know the glory of the Lord. Amen. And Jesus Christ then on the third day, just as he promised, rebuilt the temple, the place where you come and meet God in his body on the third day and was raised to life. And he told his disciples, now you need to wait and you need to pray in Jerusalem because I'm going to send my presence and my glory upon you now. So the disciples, they pray in Jerusalem. If you know the story of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, the presence and the glory of God himself, Jesus Christ, comes upon all these 120 believers and then 3,000 give their life to Christ because they realize they've come into contact with the glory that their hearts have been designed for and they say, yes, this is who we were made for. They give their life to Jesus, they get baptized and they become part of this new living, breathing, walking, working temple temple of God that began moving around Jerusalem. These bricky-like people that once was just static in a temple now was moving in and out of the streets and communities and homes of Jerusalem. You've got to imagine this. Suddenly the temple of God goes mobile in us because Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, you are the temple of God now. Beacon Church is the temple of God in Brixton. You are the living breathing, moving, mobile, scattering, transformer-like, dismantling and mantling again, presence of God. So wherever you go, because of the Holy Spirit, you are the temple and the presence of God and you are the glory of God for those around you. Which changes the way we think about all that we are, doesn't it? If we begin to think that way. If I am the presence of God, the glory of God, if I am the answer to the cashier's heart and all the questions that they may have quietly deep down in their heart that they may not have even questioned out loud before, that changes the way I approach them, even if they're rude to me. So I'm sure they never are in Brixton. I'm sure they're super polite. This is our calling as the temple of God. In, in Bromley, and this has now come to an end because I guess I'm not a pastor there anymore, but I, we used to have a school visit, used to school, and, um, and they used to do this one day for RE. They would come one day and they'd do this trip around all these different churches. And in Orpington, we have a, uh, we're in an old carpet warehouse. So they would do this trip. They'd kind of see five different schools or so, and so they'd go to the local Catholic church. That was nice, lots of things, looked very churchy. The Anglican church, Methodist church, a little bit less churchy, but they had pews and things like that. And then they would come to us about lunchtime, and what we'd do, we'd kind of give them a little tour, and they would come, and they'd have a presentation, and then they would ask 
me questions. And if you ever want to do anything terrifying, stand in front of 200 year nine girls when I am actually 35, but I know I look a lot younger. So they're, they're assuming like the vicar to turn up and they think the intern comes along and says, I'm going to like answer your questions. And I loved it because they would always ask basically the same questions year on, year out. And it was like, okay, basically, like to paraphrase, this is a church, but where's your altar? I was like, wow, it's a good question. We don't have an altar anymore because we believe that the altar that finally matters is Jesus Christ being crucified. So actually, we don't need an altar to to, to break anything. Jesus Christ is the one whose body has been broken for us. Finally, we don't need that. So another hand would go up. Okay, oh, where, where are the pictures of all like the saints and things, and where are the pictures of God and things? And we we don't we don't actually need that because by faith we we see Jesus like we see him, and and like where, where do you do any kind of sacrifices? No, we don't do any sacrifices. Uh, and then they would always ask, where are the priests? Because they definitely didn't think I was the priest because I was like dressed like this. And this is my question. I really like to answer. So I say, well, at Hope we have like hundreds of priests actually. And you can imagine them, because they're thinking like an old guy in a robe with a dog collar. And so I say, we've got hundreds of priests. And they're like, what? You know, they're imagining like this kind of long line of priests to start walking out from the back. So, huh, we're here. And I say, no, we've got hundreds of priests. Because when anyone comes to Christ, actually, we are given the priestly task of helping other people now know about God himself. We're all priests. And that's who we are. We are the ones who now mediate the presence and the glory of God between heaven and earth. That is your role in Brixton, to demonstrate the glory of God, not in spectacular buildings, but in spectacular lives. That's who we are. We are now the true, the church, we are the true Garden of Eden, where if Brixton are going to walk again with the presence of God and the glory of God, it's going to be with you. We're the true tabernacle. This is, this is the glory of God residing in us. We're the true temple. We're the place where God resides. We are the presence and the glory of God on the face of the earth. And what happens at that Pentecost moment is that not 3,120 people scatter, say, oh, wow, amazing, like, I've got the glory of God in me. I'm going to start my own ministry up, the glory of God in Daniel McLeod Ministries. I'm just going to try and go solo. I can do this. What happens when over 3,000 people become Christians and they receive the glory of God in their lives? They come together and church happens. We get this amazing description, which I know you've heard if you've been here for a while, in Acts chapter 2 at the very end, and I just want to read this to you. This is what happened. When the glory of God came upon human hearts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That was a literal thing. That wasn't like a metaphorical thing like I'd like to... This was like like a non-millennial literal, like literal thing, they were selling their possessions so they could help those around them who were in need. They said, and day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And what happens? Praising God and having favour with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And isn't that what you long for in our day? 
that there would be day by day people coming, not because we want to build an empire, but because we know that the glory that now resides in our hearts is the answer to every human heart. And you might be here this morning, and you might not be a believer. I have have no idea where you're at with God, with Jesus, with faith, with Christianity. But I know, because I've spoken to some who have been in church and they're not believers, there can be this like really awkward feeling of like a fight or flight thing. And you might have been here this whole time through the worship, feeling like really awkward and like you're intrigued and you want to stay and watch what's happening, but you equally want to walk out the door right now and just leave this place because it feels too awkward. And some of you, you're a Christian, you remember those moments. And I, I spoke, my neighbour came to our dedication of Micah, our little boy, and he, he spent most of the service coming down the front saying, we're just about to leave, like, they didn't really want to be there anywhere, we just want to, we're going to go home now. And at the end of the service, they were still there saying, we're just about to leave, we, we want, we're going to go, that's all right. And like, because they were like stuck in this, like, what, uh, I feel really awkward here, but I want to find out, but I want to go. If that's you, it might not just be because it's slightly weird, all of us standing and singing together. It might actually be because your heart is coming into contact with the very thing that you are made for, and it is a huge, epoch-changing thing for your life. It may just be that sense of slight fight-or-flight thing. It might just be because you're coming into contact with infinite glory. And if that is the case, it would really behoove you to stop and question and ask, is this the thing my heart was really made for? Is this what actually is going to fill the thing that's in my soul? Is this what, God, you're made? And just ask that question, even now in your heart. I don't know where you're at. Ask the question, Lord, in this place, this glory that I, this sense of discomfort, and if you are going to come into presence with infinite weight and glory, it might feel a little bit uncomfortable that that would be a normal thing if you think about it lord like open my eyes right now but for you as brixton i want to pray a blessing on you because eden the garden of eden is spreading through you right now through the friendship first course through your neighbors people are coming into contact with the glory of the lord and this promise stands over you and it stands over us as we church plant into victoria that the glory of the Lord and that knowledge will spread across the face of the earth and we are walking in victory step by step and I know for a lot of us that it doesn't feel like it because it feels like hey this is slow I can't really see how it's happening I'm praying for my friends or my family or my neighbours I can't really see how it's happening but we trust in the promise of the resurrected Jesus Christ who has poured out his glory on us, that one day, Eden, that very moment, walking in the cool of the afternoon with our maker, will spread across the face of London, this nation, and all of the nations. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we stand together? I just want to pray for us. And I'll I'll leave it to you, Owen, how we close up. Father, I want to say thank you so much for the promise that you've given us. Thank you, Father, for Beacon Church, Lord. Thank you for those who faithfully planted this church. Thank you for all these guys and girls here who are leading the charge, Lord. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in this place. Thank you, Lord, for a new church plant in Victoria. Thank you for partnership. And Lord, we long right now for your glory to go way beyond what we are doing right now, way beyond our control, Lord. 
way beyond all that we can think or imagine. And we pray that you would fulfill this promise in our generation. Lord, that we would see with our eyes this, this promise being fulfilled increasingly so across London, Lord. Father, we pray for all of the pockets of darkness. We pray for all the, the pockets of our city that are devoid of your glory, that haven't seen or known your glory, and human hearts that haven't known your glory. And we ask, Lord God, for an invasion by your Holy Spirit of love and grace. Lord, that there will be a transformation. Lord, that there will be favour amongst those outside of these four walls where people would stop and ask, what is this thing that I sense with you whenever I'm around you, Lord? And we ask in all these things for the glory of Christ that you, Jesus, would be known. And I want to say thank you for that song, Lord, that every other name fade away but the name of Jesus, that on that final day it will just be us and our maker in Jesus Christ walking again in the cool of the afternoon. And we pray this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, I'd, I'd like us to do two things. You can just take a, a seat just in quick response. Um, I wonder whether there is anyone who wants to respond to Daniel's message uh, particularly that idea of, the, 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 I suppose, the fight and the flight, and you're, you're, you're wondering, what is this that I've come into contact with? And um, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And if that's you, if you know that that's you, that you haven't actually given your life to Jesus, but today you feel that, then maybe you want to join me. So why don't we just bow our heads? I'm just going to pray. Father, I, I, don't, I don't understand what's happened. But there is something in me that has changed or grappled or been touched today. And if that's you, you just want to acknowledge that. Acknowledge it. Something's been touched today. Something has been moved today. Something has been opened some understanding I didn't have, I now have. Something I didn't see, I now see. And I don't know what it means, but I trust you, God, and I look to you, God. Trust you, and I look to you. Maybe that that's you, that's where you're at. You're, you're, you're just saying... God, I trust you and I look to you. I don't know what it all means, but I do know that something's happened. And if that's you, just while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you just might want to lift your hand and I'm just going to get an opportunity to pray with you. Just give a moment. didn't see any hands go up but I'm just going to commit that moment to God father that where you've spoken to us it may be that we are uh, saved and yet something has shifted in us today because of what we've heard maybe we understand something different about 
our connection to God and the glory of God. If you know you're a Christian, but actually something has shifted in you today because of what Daniel's spoken, I just want you to lift your hands. Your hands. Father, I pray for just that moment where you have spoken uh, a kind of a, a shift in our thinking, something we hadn't seen before. I pray that it will become rooted and it will produce much fruit in our lives. Amen. And then the other thing I want us to do is I want us to pray for Daniel. Um, it's, you know, we're going to be neighbours. We're four stops up the tube or down the tube. And they're very, very different, Victoria and Brixton. Um, but it'd be great to pray for you. Uh, why don't you come out here and whoever's with you from your... Tori's out with the kids. Um, uh, why don't some of us just come around them and we're just going to pray for them. And the rest of us, why don't we stand because we, we're going to come into this together. Um, I want us for a moment just to really lift our voices and pray for such a blessing upon this this church uh, plant into London. Um, let's just lift our voices and pray that God will go with them. Father, we acknowledge that your word uh, says that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, they do try to prevail. But we want to pray uh, upon this new church that you would build it. Lord, we pray that you would build your church and that nothing would prevail against it. We pray, Father, for Daniel and his family. Lord, so often in these early days, it's the leader, it's the family that um, the enemy comes against. I pray for your hand of protection over Daniel and Tori and the children. I pray, God, you would protect them in terms of their health, in terms of the finance, in terms of their focus, in terms of the children. I pray for the protection of God upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would gather to them uh, many who uh, are strong in the Lord. Yes, Lord, it's a church that wants to reach out, but God, I pray that you would gather to it those who are strong, Lord. I pray for, for strong folk to come. I pray for humble, submitted folk to come and be part of it. And Lord, that as they set out on this journey, that you would very quickly build the house. And I pray, Lord, for Daniel, that you would give him strength, you would give him courage, and you'd give him faith. Lord, I ask you to deposit faith in this man's heart. Lord, I thank you for his gift, that ability to open the Bible. But Lord, I pray that he relies beyond the gift to the giver of the gift. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.